Welcome to the Missing Midwest Podcast. My name is Liz and I am your host. I was born, raised, and still live in the Midwest. My goal for this podcast is to highlight some of the stories of individuals that have gone missing. Some of the victims you may have heard of, while others may be new to your ears. If you want to view the sources from this episode or submit a case you would like covered, you can do so on my website, missingmidwest.com. Today's case is part two of a three-part series covering missing boys from the Des Moines, Iowa area in the 1980s. Today's episode may sound like deja vu as we discuss another difficult case involving a child. We are covering the disappearance of a second boy who vanished in the early morning hours while on his paper route in the south side of Des Moines. This is the disappearance of Eugene Wade Martin. Last week, we covered the missing case of Johnny Gosh. If you have not listened to that episode, you'll want to stop here and go back to listen. The details in that case parallel the information in today's case of Gene so eerily that we think it's important to listen to these cases in order. Not even two years after the disappearance of Johnny Gosh, another boy would face uncannily similar circumstances. Eugene Wade Martin was born on August 17, 1970, and went missing just five days before his 14th birthday on August 12, 1984. Gene, as most people called him, had woken up and left his home in South Des Moines around 5 o'clock in the morning to deliver the Des Moines Register. Gene's dad's house was only a few blocks west of the Des Moines Municipal Airport, located at 1905 Fraser Avenue. Typically, Gene and his stepbrother Don, who was 16 at the time, would walk the mile to the newspaper drop-off site and work the route together. However, that Saturday, Don was staying over at a friend's house, so early Sunday morning, Gene would do the route on his own to earn some extra money to spend at the Iowa State Fair that was going to be in town that upcoming week. Gene grew up in the south side of Des Moines and was the youngest child of Don and Janice Martin. His parents had divorced two years prior to his disappearance after 13 years of marriage. His father remarried and Gene was the youngest of five living in the home. At the time of him vanishing, he was staying with his father and stepmother, Sue. His mother, whom he typically stayed with, was a bartender. On this particular night, she was working a late shift around 3 a.m., and Gene was at his father's home. His mother lived in East Des Moines in an apartment and worked at a local bar until the very early hours prior to Gene heading out on his paper route. Janice was made aware that her son had vanished while on his paper route via an early morning call from her former sister-in-law, Linda, somewhere around 7 a.m., Janice said, it took a couple of seconds for it to connect. I knew he didn't run away. I talked to him that Tuesday. His birthday was coming up and he told me he wanted a ghetto blaster like his brothers. Now, just as an FYI, I did have to look up what a ghetto blaster was. It was actually a boombox, which for those that are even younger than me, is a large portable stereo system, kind of like a giant iPod. 
The night before Jean went missing, he attended a movie and played at a friend's home. The friend said he appeared to be in good spirits and that Jean had left early to go home to go to bed, saying he had to get up early to deliver his newspapers. Jean was described as a very shy, caring child. And like any other young 1980s teenager, he enjoyed football, fishing, skating, video games, and TV. Jean's aunt on his father's side, Janice McDowell, said, quote, Eugene had an ornery streak, but what healthy kid doesn't, unquote. From everything we can tell, Eugene was just another typical 13-year-old boy working through some growing up and gaining independence. Around 5.10 a.m., a neighbor drove past Jean, who was sitting on the curb at 14th Street and Highview Drive. For perspective, this is about seven miles south of the newspaper drop-off point in Johnny Gosh's neighborhood. The neighbor waved at him, and Jean waved back, making it seem like he was in a good mood that morning. That neighbor also stated he had his bag with him, but didn't have any papers in it yet. Shortly after the neighbor drove past, another witness spotted Jean speaking with an older man sometime between 5.15 and 5.45 a.m., at Southwest 12th and Highview Drive, where the papers are dropped off for the carriers to pick them up for distribution. It is about a quarter mile walk if you would take the shortcut through neighborhood yards where the neighbor had spotted Jean sitting and where the newspapers were to be picked up for distribution. The witness that had seen Jean described the interactions between him and the unknown man as a friendly father-son conversation. He did not hear what they said, but overall it did seem friendly. All in all, Six witnesses would come forward stating they had seen Jean gathering newspapers at that corner that morning. By 6.10, Jean's paper route manager had found his bright yellow newspaper bag two blocks away back at 14th and Highview Drive. The bag contained 10 newspapers folded and rubber banded still in it, but Jean was not in sight. Initially, the manager did not seem concerned as he thought he had started delivering some of the newspapers and would be back for the rest. Shortly after, the manager started receiving phone calls from the customers that they had not received their Sunday morning paper yet. The manager returned to the paper drop-off corner to see if he could spot Jean, and when he arrived, the bag with the papers was still there, but Jean was nowhere to be found. By 7.15 a.m., the manager called Jean's family to report that his newspaper stack had not been retrieved. Initially, Don, Jean's father, assumed Jean had overslept, but quickly realized Jean was not home. By 7.30 a.m., Don had called the police to report his son missing. Don and his brother, Ron, had hopped on their motorcycles and started patrolling the area. Schools, malls, to see if they could locate him with no luck. Jean's parents were a typical blue-collar Iowa family just trying to make ends meet. Unlike the Goshes in the previous episode, Jean's mother and father were not comfortable in the spotlight. For the most part, they completely stayed out of view from the media and did not get overly involved with the police investigation. Unfortunately, because of this, Jean's case did not get nearly as much attention and very few details about his disappearance were made public. In Johnny's case, Noreen Gosh, Johnny's mother, created a website, wrote a book, went to Washington, D.C. to push for laws regarding missing children. 
Well, Jean's parents really shied away from all of this. Unlike Johnny Gosh's disappearance, the police also were much quicker to act in the disappearance of Jean. This was all in thanks to the relentless efforts from the Goshes. Just a few weeks prior to the disappearance of Jean, the Johnny Gosh bill requiring law enforcement act immediately when a minor is reported missing had been passed by the Iowan government. Police were able to respond as soon as Jean's parents reported him missing. Don said that the morning of his son's disappearance, the street in front of their house filled with police cars. The search appears to have started by around 8.40 a.m., which was still three hours after Jean's last sighting. Even though the police acted much more quickly and were treating his disappearance as an abduction, there is still a significant gap in time from when Jean was last seen to when the searches began. Within five hours of knowing of Jean's disappearance, the neighbors had flyers made with Jean's photo printed on them and put up around town. Within days, a local printer had provided thousands more posters. The community really came together and they raised money for a very large reward to anyone who could provide information on locating either Johnny Gosh or Jean Martin. The Martins had the help and support from the Goshes too. Don Martin was quoted as saying, they know what we're going through now and they know what we're going to go through. The police had also set up a special phone hotline where tips could be called in around the clock. They received hundreds of tips and spent weeks walking across Iowa farmland for any clues relating to missing Jean. From day one, the police were treating Jean's disappearance as an abduction, and they couldn't help but tie the circumstances to that of Johnny Gosh's, but they still refused to give the Gosh's the same type of treatment. The FBI stated, generally, the person is an introvert, a loner, who may or may not be extra guilt-ridden on what he does but will not turn himself in. Shortly after Gene's disappearance, his father hired a private investigator. The PI was a former Des Moines police officer. Unfortunately, the PI was unable to come up with any clues on Gene's disappearance. And with money being very tight, he ended up being fired by the Martins. The leads would come and go without any concrete proof of where their son was. The first major lead came in regarding a rough looking green car that was seen in the vicinity of Jean's last sighting. The vehicle was driven by a young white male believed to be in the age range of 20 to 30 years old with short dark hair parted down the middle and with two to three days of beard growth. The man was reported for possibly following two young women in the area. The car was last seen around 5 a.m between 14th and 18th Street, which is in the vicinity of Jean's disappearance. However, within days, that man was identified, and his story about being in the area was because he was dropping off his wife at work. However, within days, that man was identified, and he had a story about being in the area. He said it was because he was dropping off his wife at work, and it was verified. So because of this, he was no longer considered to be involved in the disappearance. Now, we know that Jean was spotted having what seemed like a lighthearted conversation with a man around 6, 10 a.m., 
but the man he was chatting with is described as between the ages of 30 and 40 years old, Caucasian, five feet, nine inches tall, clean shaven with a medium body build and medium length hair. The description of the man in the green car was quite different than that of the man seen speaking with Gene near his newspaper pickup spot. So it does appear that the police had done their due diligence in ruling out the man in the green car. Strikingly similar to the circumstances of missing Johnny Gosh, it appears the case could have been a joint effort of multiple men trying to abduct Gene, but the man in the green car does not appear to be part of this possible narrative. Six months after his disappearance, police had released information regarding two men they were trying to locate for questioning. They believe they may have been at minimum a witness to Gene's disappearance, but nothing came of it. These men were never found. More leads came in, believing Gene was spotted with a man and woman in Seattle, Washington, traveling in a red Mercury marquee with California plates and another sighting in Arizona. These leads would also be dead ends. A year after the disappearance of their beloved youngest son, the Martins' relationship with the police wasn't on good terms. They believe the police were not doing enough and were concerned they were no longer looking for their son. The case had gone cold as quickly as he had disappeared. The police did say they received nearly daily sightings of both boys and, quote, no matter how nebulous, we run it down. At the time, they said they had 25 police officers and 16 FBI agents on the case. They had conducted many searches of the area, but nothing seemed to come up regarding Gene. The FBI agree that they were not close to solving the disappearance a year after he went missing. One agent stating, well, we haven't found the kid. There's not a whole lot else to say. The Des Moines Register had made changes in an attempt to ensure the safety of their carriers. They reduced the number of routes each district manager was handling. This would allow them to check on each route more often. They also required the district managers to carry a visible badge, and they were having more meetings, rules were put into place, and incidents were being more closely monitored and reported. The register posted safety rules for carriers advising to use well-lit streets and to not take shortcuts through dark alleys or vacant lots, to be aware of their surroundings at all times, and of course, to stay away from strange cars and to not talk to strangers. They were told to not turn their back on anyone who is annoying them, to tell them that their parents will call the police if you aren't home within a few minutes. They also advise customers to leave their porch lights on. Personally, I think this is generally just really good advice, and I'm glad that they were trying to take the abduction seriously. However, I do think more could have been done to help avoid children being out on their own. Oftentimes, this was in the early morning hours when it was still dark. Maybe they could have distributed whistles to the carriers or required a buddy system to deliver the papers, having kids meet up at the home before going to the newspaper sites and then distributing the routes in pairs instead of on their own, or maybe set a minimum age, or just not allowing children in general to be delivering newspapers. Johnny's stepbrother said, I just wish someone would step up and say something. It's been too damn long. Well, I couldn't agree more. Both of Jean's parents have since passed away, never knowing what happened to their son. 
At the time of Eugene Wade Martin's disappearance, he was 13 years old, five foot tall, 110 pounds, and wearing a gray and white midriff t-shirt with red sleeves, blue jeans, and blue Trax brand shoes with white diagonal stripes. Gene is a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. He has a scar on his right knee and a healed fractured wrist. Gene would be 50 years old at the time of this recording. Please be sure to check out missingmidwest.com and our social media pages to view images of Gene and a computer-generated photo of what he may look like today. Decades have passed, but we encourage anyone with information about Eugene Martin to call Detective Jeff Shannon at the Des Moines Police Department at 515-283-4864. You can also call Detective Larry Penland at 515-237-1550. And if you want more information about the specifics of Gene's case, you can find it on Iowa Cold Cases, The Charlie Project, or The Doe Network. That was a really tough case to get through. I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to the information regarding these missing boys. And I know there's not a ton of information regarding Gene's disappearance, but we have to try and find him. Next week, we'll conclude part three of the missing kids from the Des Moines area. We will be focusing on the disappearance of Mark James Warren Allen, who went missing not even 18 months after Gene. So what do you guys think happened to Johnny and Gene? Do you see a connection between the two cases? Or is it just a series of coincidences? Or possibly even a copycat case? Let's have a discussion on this on my Facebook page. Go ahead and follow me at Missy Midwest Podcast. And if you have any questions, please send me an email at hello at missingmidwest.com. Until next time, stay safe out there.